It's now been only two years since the stunning series of clinical trial presentations of the use of the anti-HER2 agent trastuzumab or Herceptin in the adjuvant setting, and it's quickly become apparent that for the 20 to 25 percent of patients with breast cancer and HER2-positive tumors, the use of adjuvant trastuzumab reduces the risk of recurrence about 50 percent above and beyond any risk reduction that occurs with chemotherapy and for patients with ER-positive tumors, endocrine treatment. I met with the investigator who spearheaded this molecular revolution, Dr. Dennis Slayman, for an update of issues of particular relevance to surgeons. Dr. Slayman began our conversation by providing an overview of the translational research platform that led to this advance. I think the critical thing with trastuzumab is all of the early preclinical data seem to indicate to us that the earlier we use the drug in the animal models, the better the outcome. When the metastatic trial reported that there was a significant advantage, including a survival advantage, it then became obvious to move the drug into the adjuvant setting and see what it would do. So the trials were then designed and launched for them almost simultaneously within a year of one another, and all reported within about a year of one another, showing essentially the same benefit, which the preclinical model sort of indicated that there would be a big benefit, and there was, bigger than I think anyone anticipated, because all of the trials were massively overpowered, as it turns out to show the benefit, and we didn't need as many patients as we did, but there were 13,000 patients between the four trials that were randomized to trastuzumab versus non-trastuzumab-based therapy, and they all essentially showed the same thing. There was a 50% reduction in the risk of recurrence and about a third in terms of improvement in survival with the early evaluation. Now, we have to follow these trials over the long term to see if that holds up, and that's going to be a critical thing. Given the fact that a number of the trials allowed for a crossover, that's going to confound the data to a bit. Right, so there were a bunch of people who were still within a year who actually got trastuzumab in a delayed fashion. Yes, so they were all offered the possibility crossover, and numbers that I've seen are between 20 and 30 percent of the patients in the control arm that had not received trastuzumab without any recurrence elected to cross over. What about the downside? The downside is a very definite one. It's like with every therapy, there's no free lunch. The only major toxicity that there's ever been with trastuzumab has been the cardiotoxicity, in particular when it's used in combination with anthracycline-based therapy. Otherwise, this drug is a very forgiving drug. It has none of the side effects that any of our usual chemotherapies have or even some of our hormonal therapies. The incidence of cardiac toxicity was set to be a fairly high bar to cross. Essentially, they were looking for a four-fold increase in clinical congestive heart failure to say that it was unsafe to continue to do this. And they came dangerously close to that number, just under a four-fold increase. But in absolute percentages, it was around 4.6-4.7% of the patients had clinical congestive heart failure. That was versus what, about 1? Versus about 1.3%. And that was that initial NSABP report, which, as you said, they were actually would have stopped the trial if it had been four times as great and it was like 3.8 or something, yes, so they were came, able to continue it. It came very close. And then the other thing is the bar they set was clinical congestive heart failure, and this didn't take into consideration the possibility of cardiac compromise that didn't result in clinical congestive heart failure. And the old saw that's been out there is that's not really a problem. They all get better. 
when in fact what we've seen with long-term follow-up data is despite what people have been told is within two weeks to two months they'll get better, we're out to two and a half years now in 006 and find that the loss in left ventricular function before you get the congestive heart failure, that loss is maintained out for two and a half years. So I think that's something that we need to be aware of, particularly in light of the fact that with long-term follow-up data on just plain old anthracycline therapy, we're seeing from the SEER database that we're causing a lot more cardiac problems than we previously thought. This is really a huge area of controversy right now within medical oncology because there was one study that you led that was the only study that actually looked at a chemotherapy regimen combined with trastuzumab that didn't have an anthracycline, the so-called TCH regimen. What did you see there in terms of the heart? There we saw nothing over plain old ACT. So you saw what the baseline rate is of cardiac dysfunction in a population this big. It's a 3,200 patient trial, 1,000 patients per arm. So we saw what the usual noise is in cardiac dysfunction in a population that large. I think that the fact that we are able to have this non-anthracycline arm has allowed us now to do, and there's not been crossover on that trial, it allows for a long-term comparison to what the incidence is of these problems. But in particular for our surgical colleagues, many of these patients, as they know, are cured from their initial surgery and radiation therapy. And to put those patients at risk, for long-term cardiac dysfunction, I think, is something we really need to think about. Of course, the other side of this is, is the efficacy as good with its TCH, or non-anthracycline regimen? And that was really in question until December 2006 when you presented updated results, which looked like it was every bit as effective as the anthracycline regimen. So that's exactly the case. In the first presentation of the 006 data, these are called interim analyses, but in fact, at the first presentation, they had crossed their efficacy guidelines. So the trial in terms of showing the effect, was done. Now we just have update analysis of what the effects are. But there it showed that both experimental arms, ACTH, where the cardiac dysfunction problem is existing and some leukemia is existing, and TCH was superior to the non-trastuzumab-containing arms. However, there was a numerical advantage in favor of ACTH of about 4 to 6%. But that was a total in those 1,000 patients per arm of 21 events separating those two arms. And our statistician told us there's no statistical difference between those two. You need to wait till you have at least half of your events on the trial. So as you alluded to, in December '06, the trial was scheduled to look at 900 events. We had 462 events, so we were allowed to have our second look. And in that second look, it showed that essentially the arms came together that this 4 to 6% difference was a 1% difference in reality, no statistically significant difference. And that's with now not 21 events separating the two arms, but there's an additional 140 events, and there was an additional 101 deaths. And now the number of events separating the two arms was down to about 14 events separating the two arms. Yeah, and without getting into too much detail, at least from the perspective of a surgeon, you know, it's interesting looking at the oncology community because right now we know this from our patterns of care. People are still kind of sticking with the anthracyclines in general. There are a bunch of people, including you, who just gone ahead and said, no, you know, we don't need to do this. A lot of others are going, well, you know, we've got more data with anthracyclines, a lot more experience. They still want to use that. Yeah, it's been remarkable. I sort of anticipated there'd be some recalcitrance, but not quite as much as there has been. There are no data that demonstrate that the anthracyclines add any incremental benefit when one critically looks at the data, that anthracyclines add anything over non-anthracycline regimens for the vast majority of breast cancer patients. And for the HER2 population, 
it appears that that's where it's restricted to adding a benefit incrementally over non-anthracycline. However, with the addition of trastuzumab, and likely, although we don't have the evidence yet, but likely lapatinib will be the same. And of course, lapatinib, we should point out, is an oral anti-HER2 agent. Works in a little bit different mechanism. Absolutely. So it works against the kinase domain. It's an oral drug instead of an antibody. But the initial efficacy data from the metastatic setting appeared that it is close to equivalent, although it's not a head-to-head study. It's just comparing across trials. But the reality is that the benefits are there, and I would anticipate that the anthracycline effect that's restricted to the HER2 population is more than taken care of by the adding of trastuzumab or lapatinib. So now there really is no benefit unless your patient can't get the targeted therapy. And then it's important to know if she has the topoisomerase gene, which is sort of a companion gene in the amplicon, whether it's co-amplified. And if it is, that's where this huge benefit for the anthracycline derives. So overall, the overview analysis showed a 4 to 5% advantage of anthracyclines over non-anthracyclines. And that's because then in a subgroup of a subgroup, one-third of one-quarter of patients, there's a huge benefit that dragged the whole field up and made everyone think that the anthracyclines were superior. Now, a couple practical clinical questions. One is, in these trials that you talked about, trastuzumab was looked only with chemotherapy. There were no trials looking at just trastuzumab alone as adjuvant therapy. What about the older patient, the frail patient, who normally we wouldn't want to see receiving chemotherapy? What about using trastuzumab without chemotherapy? Well, in an off-study way, we've done that at our institution a number of times, anytime we think that there may be a complication of the chemotherapy. As you know, the reality is that there are data showing that if, irrespective of chronologic age, if the patient has a good performance status, they benefit from chemotherapy. And that data have been out there and touted a lot. So we don't want to not give the elderly patients every advantage they might get. That said, we shouldn't go out looking for trouble when we know there are certain regimens when they're used together that can cause problems. And if there's any kind of dysfunction or performance status issues, I think trastuzumab monotherapy makes good sense in these patients. But there are no data for that in terms of a clinical trial. What I hear oncologists in practice saying is they try to give the patient some chemotherapy. Maybe it'll be Pataxol alone or just because of, you know, what you've demonstrated and your group has demonstrated in terms of the synergy that seems to exist with chemotherapy. Right. I think that is happening. Most of the time you try to use it with a chemotherapy-based regimen. But when you look at the survival data from Chuck Vogel's study, which was the antibody alone in women who refuse chemotherapy, first-line metastatic disease, and look at the survival data, not the response data, not the time to progression data, but the survival data, they're very close. There's about a 3% difference in favor of the combination with chemotherapy versus the antibody alone. So there's a real benefit with the antibody alone. Now, the other area that was immediately of concern when these data were first presented in 2005 was the issue of the patient who had a node-negative tumor. Question mark, what's the real prognosis of these patients, particularly the smaller tumors, and what's the potential benefit in terms of trastuzumab? What do we know about that right now? Yeah, the data that have come in so far have shown that the benefit in a node-negative patient appears to be similar to the benefit in a node-positive patient in terms of the relative risk reduction. So about 40 50% reduction in recurrence? Right, exactly. And the numbers in terms of the size of the tumor, and here it's broken greater than 2 centimeters or less than 2 centimeters, looks like the benefit may be the same in both of those groups. So I think we're moving away from the traditional prognostic 
markers, now that we have some of the biologic markers and have some sense of what they mean, we're moving away from measuring the tumor and counting the number of nodes and looking more closely at how is the tumor wired, what's making it behave the way it behaves. And if it's wired in a HER2 way, it is likely to be an aggressive tumor and should be treated as such. And we're trying to gather information specifically on this subset. I guess it's important to mention we talk about a 50% reduction. That's above and beyond what they would get from chemotherapy and if they're ER-positive hormonal therapy. And they have a good outcome with that alone. So we're getting close to the asymptote of where we're going to derive additional benefit. The fact that we're seeing incremental benefit is encouraging. What's your best estimate right now of what the long-term recurrence rate is of the smaller tumors under a sonometer that are HER2 positive? So there are data that exist in the literature now published by Mike Press and Leslie Bernstein that looked at exactly this subgroup, and that is the node-negative small tumors that are HER2 positive. And their analysis demonstrates that those patients have the same sort of recurrence data at 5 and 10 years as you see for a node-positive patient. Again, speaking to the fact that it's really how the tumor is wired as opposed to how many nodes are involved or if nodes are involved, as well as what's the size of the tumor. It turns out that those traditional markers were very valuable, but they were only reflecting what the molecular biology of the tumor was. And so we can just cut out the middleman here by knowing what the molecular biology of the tumor is. Well, that does bring up the question of testing from a surgeon's point of view and hearing these kinds of numbers and knowing that the patient can potentially have a 50% additional reduction in relapse rate. You certainly wouldn't want to miss a patient who's HER2 positive. And of course, you wouldn't want to treat someone who really isn't HER2 positive. Where are we in terms of HER2 testing and what advice would you give to a surgeon in terms of making sure their patient has adequate testing? So our own approach, and it's very different, I think, than what the guidelines are, is we use FISH to determine whether or not a patient has the alteration. The HER2 alteration, remember, as it was initially described and has been described most of the time, is amplification of the gene resulting in pathologic overexpression of the gene product, the protein. And so given the fact that when you fix tissue, which we do to look at it and decide what's going on under the microscope most of the time, you alter the proteins and you don't alter the DNA as much. The FISH test in our hands has always been more reliable in identifying a woman who has the alteration versus the one that does not. The IHC has introduced false positives and false negatives, but in good laboratories, those numbers get down to single digits. In less experienced laboratories, those numbers can go up to as high as 20% being false positives and also false negatives. So I think that the way we just sort of cut to the chase is go right to fish and ask whether or not there's amplification, and we do that now routinely.